0: So, you may have noticed, uh, hopefully you've been reading Job or parts of Job as we've been going along, and even though we've been jumping around a little bit, we've sort of been steadily working our way through the, the book, and we're at a section now near the end where there's about six chapters where the fourth friend of Job speaks, Elihu. And you may have noticed as you've been reading that Job as a whole is a fairly difficult book. It's a difficult subject, probably the most difficult subject in human life, suffering and trial and our relationship of God to suffering and trial. So that's about as big as it gets. Um, But then the text itself is difficult because it's written in this poetic form and this dialogue and this trial and Job's friends are kind of half right making a good case and Job's mostly right making a bad case and so we're trying to discern so it's a particularly difficult book and then you come to this section on Elihu and it's a particularly difficult section within a particularly difficult book because the friends aren't completely wrong and Job's not completely right when Elihu begins to speak to speak to correct them both at the same time his argument can actually sound very similar and very familiar Elihu almost sounds like Eliphaz, to pick one. And I won't lie to you, this section of text was probably about the hardest I've attempted. Um, but whenever we enter into a hard text like this in the Bible, there's a couple of things to keep in mind, and that will help you through it, help me through it. Whenever you enter a particularly hard text like this in the Scripture, um, we have to keep it in the context of its book. That's the first step, okay? Okay. Remember that the writer, as they are writing, is accomplishing something for us by the Holy Spirit. And so when you read these six chapters about Elihu, we take everything that we read in there and we put it within the context of the entire book, because the writer, who quite possibly could be Elihu himself, he's probably the recorder of this story, he's accomplishing something for us in writing this book and putting it in scripture by the Holy Spirit, He's, he's not just wasting pages, right? It's not an essay that he has to get, you know, 12 pages done in order to get full marks. And so these six chapters are here for a reason in the context of the whole book. And then, what further helps us is that we take a difficult section like this and we keep it within the context of the whole Council of Scripture, the whole Bible. And what we will see is that the truths of one book of the Bible are amplified and supported in other scripture. And so if what we're discovering in in what we're reading in a difficult section is, is made clear somewhere else, then we know that we're on the right track. And so if Elihu sounds very similar to the other friends like Eliphaz, and if by his own admission he's younger than the other counselors, and if, as we see in the first few verses, that he's also burning with anger, so we have this young guy who's clearly upset who seems to be just spouting off for six chapters about everything that he's heard the question sort of comes to us and comes to many people who have read this book why should we listen to him why should we listen to this young guy who's clearly just speaking passionately and angrily at older people when he should just be keeping counsel to himself right why do we listen to him well we do get some clear clues from the book of job itself uh, in the structure of the text and what it says and what it doesn't say so so some reasons why I think we need to listen to Elihu and why we think that he is wisdom and why he is speaking the correct theology of God. First of all, he's set apart in the discourse from the other friends of Job. In the, in the structure of the book, when we come to, and we've talked about the structure a little bit, the monologue of Elihu is set apart. It's not included with the three cycles of three responses between Job and his friends. It comes after Job has made his final appear and after Job has argued all of his friends into complete silence, right? Bildad's final argument is about 6 verses and then Zophar's final argument is nothing, nada. He's he's got nothing more to say. So Job has silenced his friends, but Eliphaz has or sorry, Elihu has 6 chapters of rebuke to both the friends and of Job and it's set apart from those earlier arguments. So the structure of the text tells us this is something different. This is something you should pay attention to, reader, because this is not the same as what's gone before. Secondly, Job doesn't try to argue with Elihu. We get the sense that what Elihu says is different because Job never responds to him. He doesn't argue. Job was happy to argue to the silence, the other three friends. He was happy to correct them in the error that they were speaking. Even though they kept telling him to shut up, he wouldn't shut up. But here we see that even though Elihu encourages Job to speak, if he finds any error, Job still has no answer for him. Elihu literally says to Job, If you have anything to say, answer me, speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. So Elihu actually invites Job to respond, but Job has no response. So this is different. This is different than what has come before. Thirdly, God never rebukes Elihu. In Job 42.7, We see the section where he rebukes the other three friends because they spoke falsely about him, but God doesn't rebuke Elihu. And the biggest indication we need to look carefully for truth in Elihu's words is that God does not dispute the things that Elihu says. So whatever he says in these six chapters, we should be paying attention because it's clearly different. The friends have not spoken what is right about him, but Elihu has spoken what is right. So we have to read this carefully to see what Elihu says, is wisdom. Fourthly, he prepares the way for God to speak in these six chapters. Elihu appears in the book of Job as sort of a prophetic voice. And as you're reading the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, names are often chosen in a way similar to titles. And the name Elihu should sound familiar. It's the same root name as Elijah, right? It's literally something along the lines of, El is Yahweh, or God is the Lord, Right, Elijah, uh, the the Elijah prophets of Scripture are associated with preparing the way for the Lord, as in Isaiah 43 and and Malachi 4:5 says, "See, I will send the prophet Elijah." to you before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. And then in the New Testament, we have people like John the Baptist who appeared in the wilderness preaching repentance, who says that Jesus is the one that comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And so in Elihu, we have this prophetic voice. He's like Elijah. He's the one crying in the wilderness. He's the one that speaks to begin correction and clarifying until God arrives and speaks after him and sets things perfectly clear. So you see that Elihu has this sort of prophetic role of speaking and introducing God who's going to come immediately on the scene afterwards. He prepares the way for God to arrive and set things right. And then fifthly, as we'll see, Elihu corrects distorted theology of both the friends and Job. And and so most of all, we want to listen to Elihu, because if we look carefully, he really does offer something new to our understanding. He's not just repeating what the friends say, and he's not just repeating what Job says. He's actually offering something new that has not yet been clearly said in the book of Job. Elihu offers us new understanding of suffering and how we should rightly understand suffering in our lives, even to Job. A lot of Christians rightly look to Job as a way to approach their suffering. In other words, they, they look at Job and they're going to have the patience of Job and they're going to, you know, trust in God even though he slay them. And so their sort of theology of suffering is very much like Job's. And and they, they don't fully understand their suffering. It seems random and inscrutable. We can't really always make sense of why we're suffering. But like Job, we are not going to ultimately despair. As Christians, we are going to trust that God is in control, that God will ultimately redeem, that... that we will put our hope in God, even if it is a confused hope. That's kind of the theology of Job. That's where Job's at, right? And and that's not terrible theology. God is going to redeem. He is in control. We should always trust him no matter what. You can go through your life with that theology of suffering, and that's great. But Elihu actually offers more than that. And so if we read Elihu carefully, I think we can unpack some treasures. And it's interesting... In in Job chapter 28, Job, and you'll get into this in your homework, but Job is rhetorically asking questions where wisdom is to be found. And, and in Job 28, when you're reading that, he talks about how mankind has you know, dug up the roots of mountains and we've, you know, we've discovered silver and we've discovered gold and iron and we've, we've found precious gems and, and you know, we can overturn mountains and dig to the depths of the earth and we can find all these precious things, but we can't find wisdom. It's such an amazing setup for when Elihu begins to speak because we're going to dig into Elihu and see whether we can dig up these treasures of wisdom that are there. Because if we dig underneath the text here and see what Elihu is saying, there are treasures and and gems for our theology of suffering that, uh, that will help us so much. So Elihu speaks and Elihu brings wisdom, I think is what the text is trying to say here. What are Elihu's main issues with Job that begin to unpack this wisdom for us. The first one is that Elihu has a problem with is that Job comes dangerously close to saying that God is unjust, but Elihu says that God is just. God is always just. So in Job 34, Elihu speaking, he says, let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. So Elihu hears Job saying, I'm innocent, and God denies me justice. Not only that, I'm guiltless, but he actively wounds me. His arrow wounds me. And so Elihu answers Job and says, quiet, let's be clear here. Job, if you have something to say, you can say it. But otherwise, just be quiet and listen to me. He says in thirty four ten to 15, So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, for the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on to them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. So the first thing that we have to get in our mind here that, that Elihu wants to get across is, Whatever is happening here, Job, whatever else you think is going on, set aside the fact that God is somehow unjust. That is unthinkable. There is no wisdom there. You're not going to get to the right answer if your beginning of your argument or the beginning of your understanding is that somehow God is unjust. God does not do evil, He will not do wrong. Justice is always done in the end. God will do what is right. There's your first foundation stone of the wisdom that is to come from Elihu. He says, Job, this, this words that you're saying where you are potentially saying that God is unjust, you have to just set aside. And there's a lesson there for us as well. If we start in our thinking that the premise of truth is that God is somehow unjust, then we just abandon that line of argument, is what Elihu is saying, right? There is no basis in any line of argument that begins with God might be somehow unjust. Set that aside. Then he goes on. This is the other thing that he has a problem with. Job declares that God is silent the whole way through, but Elihu says God has been speaking plenty all the time, but men are not listening. So in Job thirty-three thirteen to 28, he says of Job, why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. So Elihu is clear here. God is speaking. Now one way, now another though no one perceives it. In other words, no one's listening. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or... Someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death or the angel of death. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, upright, And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him and they will see God's face and shout for joy and he will restore them to full well-being and they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down into the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of my life. They're the light of life. Okay so, so, okay, so what's Elihu saying here? This is where it starts to get a little tricky. And then it'll get trickier later on, don't worry. Well, this is where it starts to get tricky. So Elihu says that God does speak. He does speak at least two different ways. He speaks through his word and also through suffering. Okay, so now this is in the period of history before scripture. We don't have the Pentateuch. They don't have Genesis yet even. Right, and so this period of history before the law or before the Old Testament is written, the direct word of the Lord is by dreams and visions, like with Abraham, like with Joseph. And so Elihu says that God does speak, and that God will give the righteous or people that listen to Him a dream to warn a righteous person of wrongdoing that they are considering. And notice it says to keep them from pride. So, so he says God does speak; He gives you warnings, He gives you dreams, He gives you a message. And he says, you should turn from what you're going to do. You should, you should be afraid of what you're going to do because it's unrighteous. Or, he says he speaks another way. Very prevalent to Job, obviously. He says, they might be bedridden with suffering and with pain. They will suffer to the point of almost dying sometimes. But then God can send one of his thousands of angels to give them a message to tell them how to be upright and to correct their sin. And then they can be restored. And so, Elihu says, God also speaks through suffering he says, when God gets your attention, he will send a messenger to explain what it is you need to be examining your heart about so that you can be restored. Those people who hear God speaking, then, he says, will pray to God. And they will shout for joy at their restoration. And they will admit that they have sinned. And they will declare God's grace that they had not received what they deserved. In fact, God was gracious to them to restore them, that God rescued them. Now, that's... Elihu's explanation of how God speaks and what's going on in suffering, does that sound like someone being punished for sin? That's what the friends were saying, right? The friends were saying, Job, you're being punished for sin. But when Elihu explains it, does that sound like someone being punished for sin? Or does that sound like God trying to get somebody's attention and tell them something to change the path that their life is on? Right? No. It's not being punished for sin. The righteous are not punished for sin. On the other hand, Does that sound like God is absent? Does that sound like God is silent, that he doesn't care about us, that he's just some giant clockmaker in the sky that set the universe in motion and he really doesn't care about us puny humans here on earth? Does it sound like God is absent or silent, like Job was saying? No, it doesn't sound like that either. You see, Elihu is saying something different from the friends and different from Job. Elihu is saying, friends, you're wrong. Job's not being punished for sin. Job, you're wrong. God is not silent nor unjust. He is speaking to you. You're not listening. He speaks in his word, which at this time is visions and dreams. And he speaks through suffering. He may speak more ways, but those are the two ways that Elihu is talking about. And so he says, you're both wrong. You need to listen. God is not silent. He is speaking. Are you listening is the question Elihu is asking. God is is acting through suffering for our good. He's neither silent nor unjust, but he speaks in order to rescue us, to divert us from unrighteousness and from destruction. And thirdly, we'll sort of expand on this one perhaps the most, Elihu shows his wisdom in accusing Job of not listening the way a righteous sinner should listen. So Elihu's perception of why Job is suffering is Job's pride, and he says that in 33.17, he says it in 35.12, he says it in 36.9. They all make accusations of pride. And then in 33.8-12, he clearly defines Job's error, so I'll focus on that one. Job 33.8-12 says, But now you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words... I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me, he considers me his enemy, he fastens my feet in shackles, he keeps close watch on all my paths, but I tell you this, you are not right. Well, I who says, Job, you're not right. You're, you're not right about this. I've heard you say it and you're wrong. You're not right to say that you are clean and free from sin. You may be counted righteous. Okay, and this is where we need to understand a category distinction. You may be counted righteous, but you are not clean. There is such a thing as a righteous sinner. I, standing here today, am a righteous sinner. I sin. I'm a sinner. I'm not clean. I'm not pure. And yet, God counts me righteous. You understand that all Christians, all believers, are in the category of righteous sinners. It's a category neither Job's friends nor Job understood. They thought if you were righteous, then you didn't sin, and so there was no need for God to speak to you or correct you or anything like that. Or if you were unrighteous, then you were being punished. There was no category of righteous sinner. But Elihu shows up on the scene and he says, there's a new category, neither of you understand. Job, you are righteous, but you're also wrong to say that you're clean. You cannot say that you are free from sin. You've got a pride problem at the very least, Job. You know, it's like Job saying, I'm the most humble person in the world. (laughs) You should all know that. Nobody is more humble than me. right? That's in essence what's being said here. Elihu says, you've got a pride problem, Job. God is speaking, but you're not listening. If you listened instead of claiming he wasn't speaking, then perhaps this stubborn pride of yours could be addressed face on and dealt with. But because you keep denying that God is speaking, you're not getting your pride problem dealt with. And, and friends, on your part, you're not right to say Job is suffering as punishment. You're not right either. Job is suffering not because God wants to punish Job for his sin, nor because God is unjust, but because God wants to save Job. Right? Elihu's already said that. He said that God sends messengers in order to divert us from unrighteousness. We have to get our theology right here. It's absolutely critical. And it's why this text is so different because Elihu is making a very nuanced argument in between two other very nuanced arguments. Got to get our theology right here. God does not punish Christians. Well, we would say Christians or the righteous in the Old Testament. God does not punish the righteous. God does not punish Christians for their sins. Our sins have already been paid for on the cross of Christ. You can't punish the sins again. If If we're going to be punished for our sins, then what did Christ suffer punishment for? Okay? So when we are suffering, it's not punishment for sin. This is what can lead to bad theology. There may be consequences to our choices. There may be the inevitable results of sin in a fallen world. There may be discipline in order to correct and save us. But suffering is never punishment for a Christian might be punishment for a non-Christian. We'll get into that in a second. But it's not punishment for a Christian. God is always working out our redemption. God is never crushing us under his righteousness. Okay? He's always working for our salvation, even in suffering. So Elihu's wisdom is this. God's fire is a refining fire for the Christians, not a consuming fire. The fire of God's suffering is not meant to destroy the righteous, but to refine the righteous. Now, the Apostle Paul sounds a lot like Job, but the, Paul is speaking with far greater spiritual awareness than Job could have at his time when he says in Second Corinthians, just listen to the echoes of Job in this, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. It's the Apostle Paul. Does that sound familiar at all? Did Satan, as an agent of suffering, show up in Paul's life in order to accomplish something righteous from God to keep him from his pride through suffering? Paul sees it, right? Right? Paul knows. He's like, I got this thorn in my flesh and I understand that God is using Satan as an agent to give me this thorn because I have a pride problem. And if God didn't give me this thorn, I would be so conceited in the revelations that God has given me that it would be a problem for my righteousness. Paul gets it. Paul understands what's going on here. right? And this is what Exactly, exactly what Elihu is teaching. He's saying, Job, you've got a pride problem. You think that you are sinless. You think that God's not speaking. You need to listen. God is speaking. And if you listen and hear God speaking, maybe this unrighteous problem of yours can be dealt with. So Elihu says that suffering is different for Christians and non-Christians. Or in his day, he says the righteous and the wicked. And and we can see this truth in Elihu's teaching in chapters 36, 6 to 15. Because I said earlier, I said, suffering for a Christian is not punishment, but suffering for non-Christians might be. So suffering in the world, even though it all sort of looks the same, is different between the righteous and the wicked. It's it's different between Christians and non-Christians. It's different for believers and unbelievers. How does Elihu get this across in chapter 36? Well, let's look at the text. He says, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous, he enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. I'm just going to restate this, okay? Because this is where it gets subtle. So this is Elihu speaking. He says, God is mighty, despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive. So in other words, the wicked get punished. And he gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. So now if you're just reading Elihu, this is where you say, this sounds like Eliphaz. This sounds exactly what Eliphaz said, that God smites the wicked and he sits the righteous with kings and exalts them. Right? So that in this life we should be seen: the wicked suffer and the righteous succeed. That sounds just like the theology of the three friends so far. But Elihu doesn't stop there. He keeps going in verse 8. But if people, he's talking about the righteous there, but if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. There's pride again. He makes them listen because they say he's silent. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. So now in verses 8, 9, and 10, Elihu acknowledges that some righteous are not seated with kings. Some people, referring to the righteous, are bound in chains of suffering, in affliction. And he's saying, if they are, but if... People are bound in chains. If you find yourself in that situation where you're not seated with kings but you are bound in chains of suffering, then God is telling them something about their sinful condition. They are righteous but sinful and God wants to save them. God will make them listen. The friends never talked about this. This is where the argument now is very different. This is where, as we dig For wisdom, the jewels and the gems, we see that Elihu has something new to say about suffering here. And the phrase at the end there, when he says, God will make them listen, it's literally, he will open their ears to instruction. And that phrase may ring a bell because it's the same phrase that Elihu used back in chapter 33 when he was making the same point. In 33.16, he says, he opens the ears of men to frighten them with warnings. And so both times, as Elihu is making this point, he says, listen, let God open your ears. He's trying to open your ears so that you will listen and he can warn you. That is how suffering works for the believer, for the righteous. But for the wicked their suffering has a different result. And so Elihu now contrasts the difference in suffering between a believer who God is trying to warn and speak to and open their ears so that he can save them and the suffering of the unrighteous or the wicked. In verse 13, he goes on. The godless in heart, that's who he's talking about now, the godless in heart, in their suffering, harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, so when God sends punishment or suffering to them, not punishment, well, it is punishment for them, but when he sends suffering to them, even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines or in Elihu's day, basically just say in shame and utterly guilty, right? So this group of people, they don't listen. They don't cry for help. They're godless people whose suffering accomplishes nothing for them. They just suffer for suffering's sake. And they end up dying in shame and guilt. Because God does not open their ears and they do not want his correction. They don't lean into God when they're suffering. They lean away from God. They claim he's silent or they don't want to listen. But then he goes on, just to repeat his point. Elijah wants to make it as clear as he can. In verse 15, But those who suffer, He delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you away from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. Look at the contrast. You see what Elihu is saying here? He's saying God is literally wooing you away from the distress He's trying to woo you away from unrighteousness in your suffering. He's trying to draw you into a spacious place, free from restriction. God has these wide open plains laden with tables full of food for you to feast at. And, and Elihu is saying when, when believers are suffering, when the righteous suffer, they need to listen. God is speaking and He's trying to draw you into wide open places. What a hopeful message from Elihu here, right? What, what an amazingly different perspective on suffering he is bringing to both the friends and to Job as he speaks. And, and you can see why early on, and you'll get into this in your homework in the first few verses, you can see why, why he's angry. It literally says Elihu burned with anger against Job and burned with anger against the friends. You you ever felt that way when you've seen a brother or a sister who is just missing the point and they're actually missing to the point where they're causing harm to themselves, they're actually disrespecting God and and, and you are so passionate for them because it it comes across like anger. It is anger because you're like, and that's where Elihu is at. He's just like, I just got to talk because you guys are so wrong. You're so wrong about God. You're so wrong about what's going on. Elihu's just on fire like a prophet, to, to clarify this. He's saying, you got God all backwards. He's trying to draw you into wide open spaces. And so you see here, just, and I can't go any, there's so much more, but I can't. You, you see here, I hope, how Elihu's theology is so different from the friends and from Job. God is not punishing sin. God is not absent or uncaring or silent. God is speaking in suffering, and it's the righteous who hear his voice. He's wooing you from your sin into wide open places with him. That's what God is doing. That's what Elihu has to say. But, but I want to drill into this now. This is, the, this is the end. This is the theology of Elihu. It's, it's laid out for us. It's all very interesting and academic. You know, this exegesis of an ancient text. But is it, is it real for you? Is it real for me? Is God really speaking? And are you really listening in your suffering? And, and perhaps more importantly, is your suffering and is your trial refining you? Is, is suffering exposing the sedimentary layer of your self-reliance or perhaps a stubborn sin? Are you being drawn through the lessons of suffering into greater understanding of God? And I want to encourage you to make this really practical this week because I can tell you, whatever it is you are dealing with right now, any kind of pain, any kind of suffering, there are saints sitting beside you right now who have been there. And in the same suffering that you are going through right now, whatever it is, they have heard God speaking and they have heard the lessons that God has for them. Are you sick and you may not live through your illness? Just ask Pat Kitchman if he heard God speaking in his cancer. Are you alongside someone who is sick terminally and may not make it? Ask J. Shell Kitchman whether God was speaking in her suffering. What God taught them. What, what God spoke to them, how they were drawn to Him, how He drew them into wide open places that they would not have experienced without that suffering. Have you lost someone? Someone you love close to your heart has died? Just ask Gord, Forbes, or ask the family, Dana and Jamie, what God has spoken to them in their suffering as He slowly lost Pam, as they lost a loved one. What God spoke in that suffering and how he drew them, how he's wooing them into wider open places. Or maybe you're a man or a woman sitting here alone because your spouse is not with you today. They're not with you in your faith. They might not even be with you in your marriage. This week, ask others who are sitting here in the exact same situation or have been through it. Because God speaks in suffering to waken you up to what is really going on with Him and in your own heart in your suffering. And I get it. You don't all want to come talk to me because you think you already know what I'm going to say. I might surprise you. But I get it. You you don't want to come talk to me about whatever's going on in your marriage or whatever because you think you already know what I'm going to say and I'm just going to make you feel guilty and slap you on the wrist, whatever. I might surprise you. I'm more friendly than you think. But that's okay, I get it. But you are surrounded by wise saints who have traveled this journey. Whatever it is you're in, they've been there. And they have heard God speak in that journey. And they can help you. They've been through the pain of marriage trouble, the pain of separation, the pain of divorce. Ask them what God has spoken to them in their suffering. Ask them what you should be listening for. What God has to say in financial trouble, anything. God is speaking in our suffering. He's spoken in suffering. But here is the question that Elihu was asking Job. Will you listen? Will you listen? This is the gospel here. God is always redeeming. Sometimes when we're Christians, been Christians for a few years, we think the gospel was that thing that saved us. And so we kind of moved on from the gospel. And and there isn't good news for us today. There's always good news. We live in the gospel every day. The good news, the gospel in suffering, is that God is using it to get your attention and to speak to you and to refine you and to woo you into wide open places. And when you hear that message, and now you've heard it, there's four ways you can respond to that gospel. This is the good news, Christian. God wants to refine you. He wants to redeem you in your suffering. Now, there's four things you can do to respond to that gospel. You can either say, God isn't speaking. I'm not going to listen. I don't want to hear it. I just don't believe it. There is, no, there is no God speaking. I'm just going to struggle through this on my own. Secondly, you can say, okay, I get it. God is speaking, but I don't want to hear what he has to say. I already know. You know, The Bible says it. Paul's going to say it if I go see him. God is speaking. I get it, but I just don't want to listen. The third thing you can do is you can hear what you want to hear. Oh, yeah, I think God is speaking to me, and he, it's great. He's telling me exactly what I want to hear. I was right all along. The thing that I want in life is the same thing God wants for me. Well, that's convenient, right? If God never disagrees with you, you're probably worshiping yourself, right? So that's the third thing you can do. You can say, "Yeah, God's speaking, but I'm just hearing what I want to hear, so that I get the result I want." The fourth thing you can do is what Elihu's talking about. You can humble yourself. You can say, "God is speaking to me in this pain." There are sediments of my sin that are being exposed and I've got to deal with those things. And not only is God dealing with the sin in my life, that there are things in this situation, this problem of pain that I'm in, that I've got to deal with God's way, not my way. That God is warning me that I am on a path of unrighteousness and if I continue on this path, it leads to pain and destruction rather than into wide open places of joy and feasting with Him. I can say with absolute confidence, because God's Word says it, that God has in store for you in whatever pain you're in, more joy than you can imagine. But that joy is at the other end of obedience. You have to listen to Him in your pain. You have to deal with the hard issues of your own heart and what God is speaking. And if you do that, and don't do it alone, come to me, come to a brother, come to a sister. They will help you through this. Be in God's Word. Let Him speak through His Word. Let Him speak through suffering. God is for you and not against you. He wants to lead you into wide open spaces. He's a redeemer. There is no situation that you are in that he cannot restore and rebuild and rescue you from. So the message that Elihu has is listen to God. Let him open your ears to what he is saying because he wants to lead you out of the suffering and out of unrighteousness into wide open places. Listen to his agents of mercy that he has put in your lives. Don't listen to miserable comforters like Job had. Don't listen to your friends who are full of bad theology or worldly advice. Don't listen to Oprah. Okay? Don't listen to your friends who watch Oprah. I always pick on Oprah. It's just such an easy target. Don't listen to Dr. Phil. (laughs) He's, yeah, don't listen to Dr. Phil either. Worldly wisdom. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to your friends who have been through this. Listen to God's Word. Listen to God's people. God is speaking. The suffering of unrighteous people who will not listen ends in their destruction, but the suffering of the righteous purifies them. I'll finish with this. Elihu says in Job thirty-three, twenty-nine to 30, he says, God does all these things to a man twice, even three times to turn back his soul from the pit that the light of life may shine on him. Why does Elihu say we're suffering? God will bring us into suffering once, twice, even three times. With me, some of you guys, maybe four, five, six, seven times. Depends how stubborn we are. God will do these things to turn our soul back from the pit so that the light of life may shine on us. This is the lesson of Elihu. It's a better theology than Job's. And God's going to show up and speak next week. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you for your word. Thank you for... Your Holy Spirit that illuminates this for us. Because we would not get it if we just sat and read it by our bedside on our own power. We wouldn't understand what Elihu is saying. But your Holy Spirit comes and highlights and emphasizes and draws our hearts towards exactly what you would have us learn. God, you are speaking. So open our ears in our suffering so that we can hear. So that we can hear what it is that you would teach us about ourselves, hear what you would teach us about you, and that we would be drawn into wide open spaces. What a beautiful picture where there's tables laden with feasting with you. Your word confirms over and over and over again you are a redeemer. You are not punishing, but you are refining. You are a restorer of broken foundations. You love us, you care for us. You chasten us so that we will be drawn to you. Father, I I just pray for every saint who is here today. I don't know what they're going through, what their particular issues are, but that their ears would be opened and that they would listen to you and that by listening to you in their suffering, there would be joy at the end of their journey. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.